Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. We'll be looking at Jesus' words in verses 34 to 39. We're going to read this text together here in a second, but I want us to understand if there is one thing that we must see here in this text, one thing that Jesus is making sure that His disciples know very clearly is that for the Christian to live, one must die. And there's a lot here in this text that I wish for us to see today. So if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word and let us hear from Jesus Himself as He speaks to His disciples. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have not come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Hmm. Let's pray. Dear God Almighty, we thank you for your word. At this time of our lives, all of us who are living in this age wrestle with a, a devotion to the world versus devotion to your Son. It is a constant battle of the mind, it is the constant battle of the will. We are bombarded with things of the world that grab our attention, that allure us and entice us away from your Son, Jesus Christ, and the sacrifice that He made for us. And so God, very often we fall into a worship of the self without even realizing it. It is so subtle. And so God, I pray that your words here through your Son, Jesus Christ, are words of, of challenge, are words of awakening, words of comfort as well. I pray, God, that you would use this time for your glory, that you would shape us into the men and women that you want us to be. Speak now, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. This morning, we are looking at a passage that calls for an amazing loss of the self in return for eternal life. I know this is, many of us in this room may have even heard sermons along this line. If you have grown up in the church through youth groups, et cetera, et cetera, there's always some type of a teaching at some point. Uh, don't be selfish. Uh, sacrifice your selfish desires and turn to Christ. It's a, it's a, it's a foundational principle of faith. Yet, I'm just going to be direct, it is difficult for us in this modern age of secularism to really grasp what this means. And so I think what Jesus is teaching here to his apostles, remember in chapter 10, Jesus is preparing his apostles for a hard ministry, a hard life of ministry. It's almost as if chapter 10 is predicting what the what the apostles will be facing, not just in this short-term ministry, but for the rest of their lives in serving their Lord and establishing the church, their lives will be hard and they will be, they'll be wrestling against enemies of the gospel. Yet we as the church, 
we face the same thing. If we are true disciples of Jesus Christ, there are enemies of the gospel that will come against us and that will come against our message, that will come against the truth of the gospel if we are genuinely living it and genuinely proclaiming it. And so I have always said this, uh, and, and it's something I challenge myself with too, that if I don't have enemies of the gospel coming against me, then I, I really, it's a red flag to me. Am I even preaching the gospel? Am I living the gospel? Am I living out exactly who Christ is to a world that has fallen and enemies of him? If I am comfortable and I have no enemies coming against me, that to me, I'm wondering, what am I saying or doing? Am I being more secular and less Christ-like? Now, I don't say that to cause us to feel guilty. I say that as what Jesus is saying here. If you're proclaiming the gospel, here's what's going to happen. There will be enemies that come against you. It will happen. And he's doing this in preparation. But what Jesus is saying here, he's spelling out the hard truth of the Christian life. In order to live, one must die. And there's a couple of different layers here that I want us to see in Jesus' words. To understand this passage, verses 34 to 39, I want us to begin with the last two verses here, verses 38 and 39. I want us to start there. This is the conclusion of this small passage. And if we begin there, then we'll be able to see the application of the idea of sacrifice and self-denial in the other verses leading to it. Self-denial, dying to the self in order to live in Christ. That's important to the faith. Amen? Let's look at verses 38 through 39. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Simple words, powerful words. It's a message that Jesus repeats regularly throughout his ministry. It's a message that we see throughout, not just in Matthew's gospel in several places, but also the other gospel accounts reveal this same fundamental teaching of the, of the cross that Jesus is causing his disciples to wake up to. Jesus employs the imagery of the cross here. And if you look here, we have a cross. It's not a fancy cross. It's a very simple cross. But it's a cross. The cross is the symbol of the faith. It's a symbol of death that is now our cherished image, our cherished symbol for Christianity. Why? Because to take up the cross implies a commitment to be like Christ in all things. Not just on Sunday morning. Not just when we're listening to Christian radio or watching Christian YouTube preachers. We don't even, I don't really know that many people watch cable TV preachers anymore. I think they've kind of gone by the wayside. It's now internet YouTube channels, right? There's a, they're out there. Even when we are suffering for our Lord, when we are suffering, the same suffering that our Lord endured on the cross, that's what Jesus is implying here. Jesus makes it clear in these words that no one can be his disciples. I'm going to repeat that. No one can be Christ's followers. No one can be a Christian unless he lays down his life and he carries his cross. No one can be his disciples unless that person is prepared to endure the afflictions 
of the faith. If you're not prepared to endure suffering and affliction for Christ, I'm going to challenge you to really do some soul searching. These are the words of Jesus Christ himself. He does not say, come to me and all will be wonderful. He says, come to me and your life's going to be difficult. What a sales pitch. Now, the benediction of Paul's letter to the Galatian church in Galatians chapter 6, I think puts this commitment to the cross into perspective. So if you'll turn with me over to Galatians chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, Paul really drives this point home. He's echoing the words of Christ here. Here's what Paul says to the church in Galatia at the end of his letter to them. Verse 14. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I think that summarizes very clearly what Jesus is teaching here. Paul says, boast in nothing but the cross. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does Paul boast in the cross? It's caused by the cross of Jesus Christ, the world is crucified to Paul. By the cross of Christ, Paul is crucified to the world. That's an important point here. Look here in verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. The idea of circumcision here, Paul was arguing against the legalists of the day who said that you must be circumcised and continue to follow the Mosaic traditions in order to be a Christian. And Paul is saying, no, you do that, you're acting like the world where you have to put conditions on following Christ. He's saying, don't do that. It's by the cross that the world is crucified to me and I to the world. I no longer follow what the world commands. And the world, the secular world, will expect things of us in order to earn favor. Yet, in in the faith of Christianity, in following Jesus Christ, there's absolutely nothing we can do to earn God's favor. It's the blood of Christ that rescues us. It's the blood of Christ on the cross that brings us grace and favor that we don't deserve. That's the point here. Paul's letter shows us that the sacrifice of the self by the flesh and by rules. In other words, if the sacrifice, the idea that we must be circumcised, sacrificing the idea that we have to follow the rules. Now that's a type of suffering that does not bring peace or mercy. The only new creation that's possible, the only hope that we have for peace is in Christ. We can't settle our minds and bring peace to our lives by following a set of rules and doing what the law says that we must do or what the world says we must do. How many do we know who wish to find peace in their lives and they try everything that the world throws at them, they try everything that the world says to try, and in the end they're still in turmoil inside. You see what we're happening here? The only peace that's possible is through Jesus Christ. And that peace comes as a new creation comes within us. The only new creation that is possible in us is the newness that the blood of Christ can bring, period. That's it. The new Christian is one who's made new in the cross. 
the place where Christ's blood is spilled for us. That's the newness of Christ. Now, what does this new life in Christ look like? Let's look here at Matthew chapter 10, verse 38. Jesus says, and whoever does not take the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So what does this, what does this new life in Christ look like on the cross? Jesus clearly says that worthiness of him, worthiness of his forgiveness comes only through cross bearing. Now this is again, Jesus is not laying down a set of rules here. He is giving an imagery here of bearing the cross. This cross bearing involves denial of the self. That's what we're talking about here. Actually, Mark chapter 8 helps us see this. You don't have to turn there, but here's what Mark's gospel says. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. If any, and these are the words of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is predicting his own death here, I think. It must happen to him. That's what Mark chapter 8 verse 31 says. Jesus is telling his disciples, this death, I must carry a cross. It's a prediction of what's to come. Yet Jesus, I think, also teaches that his death of the self is also applicable to us. This denial of the self, this death of ourselves must occur in all of the disciples of Jesus too, period. It's got to. Otherwise, we're not reflecting Christ. Did Christ deny his own wishes and wants to go to the cross willingly for you? Yeah. He denied his own desire. He was not only fully God, but he was also fully human. And to be fully human meant that Jesus also possessed and carried the same desires and and the, and, and the wants that we do. Yeah, he did not sin. He went willingly to the cross and he denied his own wants. He denied his own desires to follow the Father in heaven, to the cross. So in following Jesus, when we as his disciples follow him to the cross, I think when we are following him, it's almost like there's two people involved here. Every Christian, genuine Christian, every genuine Christian is both a Simon of Cyrene and a Barabbas when we come to the cross. Like Barabbas... We escaped the torture of the cross. Remember Barabbas? He was the one that that was actually released instead of Jesus. Barabbas was guilty. We could even say guilty of sin. (laughs) Yet Jesus was innocent and the crowd wanted Barabbas. Remember him? So like Barabbas, we escaped the torture of the cross and Jesus dies in our place. But now we're also like Simon of Cyrene, if you remember him. He was the man who was compelled by the Roman guards to carry the cross for Jesus when he could no longer carry it. So if you look at this, we are both a Barabbas and a Simon of Cyrene when it comes to burying our cross. Jesus dies in our place on that cross, but we also carry the cross to share in Christ's burden. It's a both and. That's, that's deep imagery. And many of us as Christians, we may not really ponder that for a minute, but that's what Jesus is calling us to. Let's remember what the cross represents. It's it's crucifixion. Crucifixion was a very public event. The Romans made certain that all who passed by someone on the cross would experience the fear of death. 
Likewise, I think the Christian is called to the cross not as a private thing, but a public suffering. The cross of Christ is too public. It's a public display of the death of sin in our lives and our devotion to Christ. To take up the cross means a commitment to be like Christ in all things. And that means even being committed to the suffering that our Lord endured. How many Christians in this room are willing to do that? Let's look here at verse 39 of Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I think the point of this verse is that Jesus is telling his disciples that for the true Christian to exist, you got to die in order to live. You got to die in order to live. Jesus will die for the life of the Christian, but the Christian will also die in order to live in Christ. They'll die to themselves in order to live in Christ. Anyone who's careful and they want to defend their life at all costs, they want, to do, they want to preserve their life, I think they're going to be disappointed. Their life, the very one that was so precious to them, is actually going to die in the end. And that life that you will defend to the end and preserve to the end will actually be lost in the end if that is your primary motive. To find the life in this context here in verse 39, I think to find life means to possess it. And I think Jesus wants his disciples to understand that they cannot protect what they do not possess. But who possesses the life of the Christian? Jesus himself. Only Christ possesses the lives of all of his elect. He holds us tight. He protects us. He guides us. He leads us. Only the one who grants life can protect it because he alone possesses our lives. Only Jesus Christ can ensure safekeeping. But his definition of safekeeping is much different than what the world defines safekeeping. Jesus came into the world to make dead men alive. Y'all realize that every one of you in this room are dead men walking. You ever heard that term before? Every human being is born in sin. We carry the curse of Adam we, the minute we're born, we're destined to die. And it is only through Christ that we're made alive. So that's Jesus' purpose. He came into the world to make dead men alive. Let's think about this. If one's focus is to safeguard your life, then you're going to be blind to the eternal life that awaits. If your main focus is, I want to guard my happiness... I want to guard my existence. Ultimately, it's going to fail on you. We're going to be blind to the eternal life that is promised in Christ. Here's what Proverbs chapter 49 says, verses 18 through 19. The wisdom of Proverbs says, For though he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you go well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his father's who will never again see light. The wisdom of the Proverbs basically says this, if you focus on elevating your life and protecting your life, what's it going to give you in the end? You're not going to be remembered. Once you're gone, you're gone. So what are you protecting? Matthew's Gospel records another scene of this same lesson. If you look in... Uh, but Matthew 16, 24 through 28 actually echoes what Matthew is saying in chapter 10, verse 39. 
It speaks to the eternal reward that will come at the final judgment. Taking up your cross to follow Jesus is the same idea here. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. So what is more valuable? It's the soul. It's not this life that we live in. It's something bigger. And the point that Jesus makes in His teaching ministry, I think can be summarized here. If you're in Matthew chapter 16, you can drop down, uh, if you can go back up to verse 23. The verses prior to what I just read, Jesus chastises Peter in Matthew 16 for seeking to protect Jesus from persecution and death. Remember that scene? And here's the words of Jesus to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. What Jesus is saying in response to Peter in, in, in this idea here of, of focusing on the soul and ignore, or not ignoring, but, but casting aside the human flesh. When we are focused on our flesh, when we are focused on our selfish lives and preserving that, Jesus equates that with a hindrance of Satan himself. Peter wanted to protect Jesus. Oh no, Jesus, they're not going to come after you. You've got your disciples here. We will defend you to the death. And Jesus looks at that well-meaning defense and says, this is of Satan. Do not tempt anyone to protect their lives. They must protect their souls. Forfeit your life in order to Protect your soul. Now, even though Jesus calls his disciples to suffer and to deny the self and to share in his suffering on the cross, what does this new life in Christ actually look like? You ever ask that question? It's one thing for Jesus to say, die to self and embrace the cross, but what does this new life in Christ look like? This life in Christ that is guaranteed to be suffering. What does the death of the self look like? What suffering is going to come? Now, let's go back here to Matthew chapter 10. Now that we've looked at verses 38 through 39, let's look at the verses prior to that. That'll tell us what the, the sacrificial life looks like. Verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, I tell you, there's something to be said about loving your mama. Amen? The joy's back there going, yeah, they better love me. Amen? <laughs> All right. Jessica and, and Chelsea. Yeah, they better love mama, right? You see, there's something about loving mama, but here is what Jesus is saying about that love. 
Now, a literal reading of these verses, I think, may cause one to think that Jesus is calling us to practice a militant Christianity. I mean, there's, there's language of warfare here. Taking up a sword, dividing families, creating enemies. And some may take this text out of context and actually think that Jesus is calling us to take up arms. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. So let's see what he's saying here. There was a type of religious sect in Jesus' day called the, called the Zealots. Do you remember? You've heard about the Zealots? These Zealots prepared for holy war. They prepared to defend Israel from God's enemies at all costs. These Zealots, they were prepared for a divine religious war to defend God's people. They were honoring God, actually, through their military preparedness and political warfare. That was how they, that's how they worshiped the Lord. The zealots honored God by being militant. But now we have to remember that Jesus does call one zealot, a couple, actually a couple of zealots, Simon the zealot to follow him as one of his twelve. So he does have some zealots even within his twelve, but does he embrace that ideology of the zealots of the military flavor? I don't really think so. I think he changes these men in their demeanor. A literal reading of these verses could also cause us to believe that a true Christian must sever from their families and separate ties. You know what they call that? They call that cult worship. One of the primary signs of a cult leader is they separate you purposefully from your family. I don't think Jesus is doing that either. Jesus seems to be prophesying here rather than establishing a set of moral standards to follow. I think he's predicting in these words what the disciples will experience when they take up their cross and follow him and they lose their life to find life. What's going to, what that, what is that going to look like? It's going to look like verses 34 through 37. He's not implying that he wants to bring war. Because Jesus brings true peace. Remember? It's it's the reaction to that peace, the reaction to the way a warlike fallen world would react that Jesus is pointing out to. When Jesus brings peace, reconciliation of the warlike fallen world toward the Creator God, the world is going to react combatively. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's not that Jesus is ushering in a eternal war with swords. What he's pointing out here in verses 34 through 37 is, here's what it's going to look like when you live like me. The fallen world is going to respond in warlike fashion. The world is hostile to God, period. Jesus, when he comes, he tears down this wall of division between God, the Creator, and fallen humanity, His creatures, to restore peace between the two. That's the purpose of the gospel. Remember when we look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, here's what Paul says. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace who has made us both one 
and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So when we take up the cross, we're doing, we're embracing and becoming what Jesus has done. Jesus through the cross has killed the hostility between God the Creator and fallen man, His creation. You see the point? But let's just be honest, the the fallen world, the secular world, is going to react to Christ very aggressively. And if you've ever lived the life of Christ, if you've ever lived the life of a genuine Christian for any amount of time, you've seen it. Paul speaks further to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17, about the peace of Christ. Here's what Paul says about Jesus. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. So we see in this biblical context that Jesus is the author of peace. He does not initiate hostility, but hostility is the response of the fallen world to the gospel of peace. And that's what Jesus is saying here in verses 34 through 37. Look here in verse 34 and 35. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. When, when, when somebody comes to Christ, there's going to be division. The sacrifice of the self takes on a personal cost. And part of that personal cost is family. Family will become a hindrance to the Christian when the family becomes of first importance to that Christian. It's part of the warning that Jesus is saying here. Does it mean abandon your family? Please don't do that. Because Jesus also condemns the Christian as anathema if he abandons and ignores the needs of his family. So there seems to be a conflict here, but I don't think there's that great of a conflict. When one comes to Christ in full obedience and self-denial, members of the family actually drop in order of importance in that Christian's life. What comes first? Our Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that He has granted us through His blood. That's first. Family comes at best second. Now, if you have lived a life where you have rightly honored your family and they have become first in your life, if Christ comes into the picture, suddenly family's going to say, wait a minute, something's different about you. You don't love us as much as you used to. Something is more important to you than us. And guess what family's going to do? They're going to react the way Jesus is talking here. It's like the, it's almost like when when a person becomes a Christian when they actually experience genuine self denial and they elevate Christ in their lives when Christ becomes number one. It's like an enemy comes into the house when a new believer comes home to their family. In no way does Jesus want his disciples to abandon their family, but we see here that the family reacts to the Christian. It's almost like a division has happened, and it's because of Jesus that the division has happened. And so Jesus is warning here. He's bringing compassion here. Verse 36, when Jesus says this, and a person's enemies will be those of his household, he's actually echoing the prophet Micah. 
Micah chapter 7, verses 5 through 6, I think it's going to help us understand this a little bit. Flip over there to Micah chapter 7, uh, verses 5 through 6. Here's what the prophet Micah says, that Jesus is actually, he's not citing this directly, but he's echoing the same idea. The prophet Micah, speaking about a time of difficulty, he says this, Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend, guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. It's almost as if Micah is predicting the enemies are within your house. Micah speaks in his prophecy of a doomed future apart from the salvation of the Lord. And any future apart from the salvation of the Lord is going to look like what he just said. Anyone who places their faith in their relationships is not trusting the salvation of the Lord. And that's what's happening here. Salvation is not in the comfortable. Salvation is that which is uncomfortable to the flesh. Salvation in Christ is not in the comfortable. It's actually in the uncomfortable. And so when Jesus is citing the prophet Micah in uh, verse 37 of Matthew chapter 10, the words of Jesus, I think, seem harsh. They're contrary to our natural feelings. It's natural and good to love your family, to love the relationships that you have. And so when Jesus is speaking about making enemies of all those who ought to be our closest allies, his words seem harsh. They seem contrary to natural feeling. But Jesus is not commanding us to abandon our emotions. He doesn't expect us to abandon our responsibility. In other words, he's telling us, whoever loves their family more than me You don't love me. Jesus is setting the tone that if the love of our own desires outweigh our love of Christ, even if the love of our family hinders us from the following of Christ, then we must resist that urge with courage and devotion to our Lord. He will actually balance it out. Yet don't be surprised if you are a new Christian in the faith and you come home to your family, it's almost like Christ himself has brought a sword between you and your loved ones. But he says, whoever, in verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I have seen this play out so much in the church. It's primarily in the southern church of the United States. We love family. And we celebrate family. And I think that's important. Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, this church is structured around a family-centric focus. We want families to grow together in the faith. We want to encourage and strengthen parents to love their children and grow them into the faith. So here's some words of caution from our Lord. As good as that is... And as much as our Lord loves the structure of the family, your family does not come before Christ. 
When Christ comes into your family, it's almost like a war has begun. It's almost as if when you bring Christ into your family, there's a division there. The idea of the sword is a sword that divides. The language of war is here because the reaction to the gospel can be very combative. And this is why families really struggle. And I've seen this in our age more and more. One of the number one excuses I hear from people who are outside of the church, who are feeling called to the church, well, my children don't want to come to church this morning, so we have to stay home. I hear it all the time. My children don't want to come to church, so we stay home. They're putting their children their family before Christ. They're not welcoming Christ into their home. Jesus, when he does come into a home situation like that, it's going to be like Jesus is bringing a sword in because the, the, the atmosphere is already so combative. So what he's saying here, what Jesus is telling his disciples and what he's telling us, is that the nature of the gospel will bring opposition to your loved ones. One of the, in my very first pastorate right out of seminary, this was around 2010, 2011, a new pastor in this church, I was a young pastor, well, young, I was in my 40s by then, my first pastorate. But one of the number, one of the biggest troubles I got into I got in so much trouble in the church because I had deacons coming to me. And when the deacons come to the pastor, it's never good. And they said, preacher, your sermons are offensive. And I said, okay, how am I offending you? Please teach me. And when they would explain what I was saying, I said, well, is that not what scripture says? Well, yeah, but it it, it rubs people raw. And the only response I could give after, you know, a lot of these kind of conversations with deacons, I finally, as a pastor, said, listen here, folks, I I, I don't want to be offensive. If I'm offensive in my tone or if there's something in me that needs to be addressed, I'm always welcome your counsel. I said, but when your answer is that when I preach the word of God, it offends people, that's the nature of the gospel. It will offend. Particularly, it will offend the sinner who is so loving of the world that when they hear the truth of the gospel, it rubs them raw. And this is what Jesus is saying. But let us remember that the nature of the gospel is peace, yet the nature of man is war. So whenever there is a combative reaction to the gospel, it's not Jesus bringing combat into the equation. It is man bringing combat into the reaction to the gospel. And that's really what Jesus is meaning here when he says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. And then when he talks about setting families against one another and one's enemies will be his own household, Really what I think Jesus is pointing out here, he's teaching them, listen, (laughs) I am peace. Yet you're going to receive and experience division at the personal level. Are you ready to do that? 
When the gospel is lived out truthfully and faithfully, the reaction from others and even their own emotional desires are going to be warlike within them. It's going to be a combat between your emotions and the call of the gospel to to preach it well. It's going to be like combat between you and your family. It's going to be like combat between you and your co-workers, you and your employer, you and the world. It's going to be a battle. And I want to close with this. This is nothing new that Jesus is saying. He's actually fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, we actually read the same words that John the Baptist speaks later in Matthew chapter 3. Here's what the prophet Malachi says. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a degree of utter destruction. John the Baptist was known for being very divisive in his words, in his ministry, yet he was preaching exactly what God the Father wanted him to preach in preparation for Christ. But we saw what happened to John the Baptist. He was so devoted to his ministry. He was so devoted to the message that God the Father had given him as the final prophet, the one who was actually like Elijah, that he goes to his death as he even goes and confronts Herod for his sin. And Herod responds with a sword and takes his head. Christian, this morning, I'm not calling you to go out there and stir up trouble. Don't be one of those Christians who goes out and looks for a fight. That's not what Jesus is saying. You know those Christians? They want to go out and cause trouble just to stir up an argument? We're not called to that. We're called to live at peace as much as it is in your power to do so. Yet when reaction to the gospel is what fallen man does, what do you expect? Do you continue entrusting Christ in preaching the gospel? Or do you succumb to the aggression that is the result? I think this is what Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for. If you were, are not, if you were not bold enough to stand for me, if you were not bold enough to love me, if you were not bold enough to take up your cross and suffer death if necessary for me, you're not worthy of me. That's what Jesus says. Now, as we depart here in just a little bit, as we sing one more song and as we close out our worship time, we are going to celebrate with Izzy and her family. We're going to, we're going to baptize Izzy as she has publicly, this is, uh, it's been a while, but you publicly came before the church and you confessed that Christ has made you new. And she's all, she's going to follow the Lord in baptism. Baptism is this obedience to Christ. Yet baptism is also showing the world, I am dying to myself and I'm coming up out of this water new in Christ. It's it's really showcasing death and life. Now, Izzy, it's not going to be easy, is it? I'm not talking about getting in the cold water. I'm 
I'm talking about living the life of the Christian. It's not even, there's, there's this war within the soul. There's this war between us and the world. Are we worthy to take up our cross and die to self and become new in Christ? Just like baptism shows. Izzy is obeying Christ. She's going to show us publicly. Bold witness, I am dying to myself and Christ is new in me. How many of us in this room have already been baptized? You don't have to raise your hand. But are you continuing to live and walk that same testimony? I am dead to myself. I am now alive in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Words of challenge, hard words to wake us up, but also words of comfort in the midst. I pray, God, that you would, through your spirit, embolden us and strengthen us that if we are new in Christ, that we are dead to our old self and that there is enough there with your presence. It is through the blood of Christ that your spirit dwells within us. And that's enough. I pray, God, that we would be worthy of your Son, Jesus Christ. Not that we're earning the salvation, but that after the salvation, once we have been made new in Christ, we continue to live boldly and with worthiness of the name of Christ as we stand firmly, peacefully, and lovingly for the truth of the gospel. And then when division comes, I pray, God, you would comfort us. Cause us to be emboldened more, but in more and deeper faith, to have deeper confidence in your Son, Jesus Christ, and to live it out. Lord, I pray as we close our time of worship that you would use this time for your glory. Stir within us what needs to be stirred. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. But Lord, I also pray that through your mercy, you would embrace us and love us and show us that love. Let this time be for you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.